going to have our Bible reading, and Liz is going to come and bring that to us from Matthew chapter 2. Okay, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Well, morning, folks. Great to see you all. And thank you, Liz, for reading. Uh, We're going to continue then in in this little uh, series in Matthew's Gospel. Um, And... Uh, we're just going to be looking at the, the passage that was just read to us. Right, um, I woke quite early this morning and came down to my study as I normally do on a Sunday morning. It was still dark outside uh, and I flicked the, the blind so it was sort of semi-open and over the next sort of hour or two I slowly watched as different people from my road up at Elm Trees emerged and I was struck by the different reactions that they all had to the snow. Um, the first people to arrive out were two small children, uh, two boys who live opposite us, and they came out while it was still dark and were lobbing snowballs at each other. Uh, a moment later, a rather reluctant mother came out, I think still in her pyjamas, but with wellies on, with a big coat on, kind of wanting to have fun with the children, but kind of wishing they hadn't got up quite this early. A little later on, there were some uh, slightly older children who came out and they got to work building a, a really big snowman. Uh, it looked pretty impressive. Uh, then some of the more serious people came out. Uh, they, they were in sort of survival mode. Um, out came the snow shovels, sort of uh, trying to dig away the big two inches of snow that's going to prevent them from leaving their house. And it all looked very, very serious. Uh, I then went out to talk to some of the neighbours, and uh, one um, neighbour was saying that they were particularly grumpy because their husband had been rung that morning um, by a son who'd had a bit too much to drink last night and wasn't safe to drive home. So the, the dad had had to drive to Tame to get the son to bring him home, and then they got stuck on the road coming into Long Crendon. So not only had the dad uh, lost his lion, but he also had to traipse back in the wet snow with his um, um, hungover son. Lots of different reactions to the snow just this morning on my road, and it got me thinking about this passage, because in this passage we see three different reactions to the person of Jesus. But here's the thing. How you responded to the snow this morning, whether you were overjoyed like the little children or thoroughly miserable uh, like the father who had to go and pick up his son, that doesn't actually matter, does it? But in this passage, the reactions to Jesus and indeed in our lives, the reactions to Jesus really do matter. And we're going to see three of those reactions this morning. Um, So come back to the passage and have a look at verse 2. Because the first reaction you see to this announcement that Jesus is to be born is an announcement of hostility and hatred. So the Magi, uh, who we looked at last week, say this, where is the one who's to be born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And we thought last week, didn't we, about these these wise men, these um, 
kings perhaps or people who worked for kings, they had a fascination in the stars and they had a, perhaps a fascination in finding out about this foreign king who they wanted to come and honour. We saw his star and we wanted to come and worship him. And then we read verse 3. Do you see, when King Herod hears this, he was disturbed. Literally, he was shaken up. And why was he shaken up and all Jerusalem with him? Well, remember last week I told us that King Herod was a very, very paranoid king. Uh, when I was in Israel last year, this is um, a, a replica of a place called Masada. And on this great stone, which in real life is a giant, great big rock, um, overlooking the Dead Sea. You can see up on the screen behind me, this is a, a, a model of a massive great big palace that King Herod had built. And do you notice, one of the, the bits of his palace he built was this massive great round structure where he had a view of his kingdom in every direction. And it wasn't just good architecture, it was because the king was paranoid. He didn't want any other kings to come into his kingdom. And so he built this great place really high up so he could look out for invading armies because he wanted to be the only king. This is another place very near Jerusalem, just outside, where King Herod built a fort. And if you look in this next picture, this is Jerusalem in the background. And what you see here, this is the shepherd's fields. The shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks at night, or as one little naughty boy said, washing their socks at night. This is where they were doing it. And then here in the foreground where I'm taking the picture is, is Herod's fort. Now, the interesting thing is... Archaeologists reckon that this fort was built on a man-made mound because Herod said, I want a fort here. But when he started building it, it wasn't high enough for him to see Jerusalem. So he got his people to build a great big artificial mound and on top of that built his fort so he could see the city of Jerusalem and make sure it stayed protected. Now, why do I tell you all of that? It's just a bit of interesting background, but it tells us something about this King Herod. He was a very, very paranoid king. Um, Ancient history tells us that King Herod killed two of his sons and ten of his wives because he was afraid that they might take over his kingdom. Uh, when he was 70, he retired to the city of Jericho and King Herod locked up all of the wealthy and the intellectual people in his kingdom because when he died, he didn't want them to be taking over his kingdom and to, and, and to rule and have more fame and authority than him. He was an absolutely paranoid king. Augustus quipped once that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. If you fell out with Herod, that was it, you were gone. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it gives us an understanding then of what Herod is doing here. Have a look at verse 7. Herod calls the Magi secretly. He finds out the exact time the star has appeared. He sends them to Bethlehem and says, Go carefully in search for the child. As soon as you find him, come back and report that I might go and worship him. But Herod had no intention of worshipping this king. Herod had one intention, which was to get rid of this king. Look at verse 16, if you just look ahead. And we're going to come to this in, uh, in a future um, sermon. He wanted Jesus dead. And the only way to guarantee that this baby boy was to die was to make an order, a declaration that every firstborn son was to be killed. Every boy. If you think of... Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a famous, in the 18th century, a famous German atheist philosopher. He was the man who famously quipped, God is dead. And during that period of enlightenment, it would be very convenient to declare God is dead. Because if God is dead, it gives me then a reason or a declaration of why I can live my life in complete independence. If God's out of the picture, 
I don't need to relate to him. I don't need to think about my life with relationship to him. So if I declare God is dead, this is what he went on to say, we philosophers are now free spirits. Now think about that attitude of declaring that God is dead. Because many people reject Jesus Christ, maybe out of a fear of who he is or out of a hostility. Because when we hear of Jesus who makes great claims in our life, if you would come after me, you must deny self, pick up your cross and follow me. We can reject that. I want autonomy in my life. I want to be Lord of my life. And sometimes, therefore, we reject him. And it's more convenient just to say, well, I don't believe in the existence of God because then I have an excuse, at least in my own mind, of living life my own way. But I hope that grieves us when people reject the lordship of Jesus because actually, as we've seen many times before, it's the lordship of Jesus that leads to greatest freedom. When he's first in my life, it's actually the freest I'll ever be. Because his rule, his lordship over my life is not a burdensome rule. It's a life-giving rule. But it grieves me, and I hope it grieves you, that so many people in our world, many people maybe in our families and our neighbours who we want to witness to this Christmas, will reject Jesus Christ, maybe a bit like Herod, out of a fear and a hostility. I want to be lord of my own life. Herod said, I want to be the only king, and therefore there's no place for another king in my life. And yet, as the Bible wonderfully declares in one of John's letters, perfect love drives out fear. And that fear that many people have that holds Jesus Christ at a distance or pretends that he doesn't exist, maybe is driven from not knowing that perfect love. Because when I come to understand the love of Jesus, the perfect love, it takes away my fears. I no longer have to fear his rule over my life because I see that his rule is a life-giving rule. So as we reflect this Christmas, it'd be worth considering the many people who turn their backs on Jesus Christ out of hostility, out of a hatred of someone who claims to be Lord of their life. But look at the next reaction. This one's a little more subtle. You have to look a bit more carefully to see this. It's the reaction of indifference. When he, Herod, had called together, verse 4, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he says to them, where is the Messiah, this is God's king, to be born? And they reply, verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what is written in the prophet. And then these religious leaders quote from a book in the Old Testament, a book called Micah, from chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I imagine many here will perhaps not be so familiar with the book of Micah. The book of Micah, particularly in the early chapters, the first six chapters, focus on the judgment of God. God who is speaking to judge his people who turn their back on him. And in the book of Micah, all of God's people are effectively in the dock before the almighty God who created everything. And they're being judged. But remarkably, what comes in chapter 7 is something wonderful. Let me read a few words. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin, forgives the transgression of the remnant? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in the days long ago. 
It's a book all about judgment, but it's a book that ends with the astonishing love of God. And Micah, who's the prophet who's told to deliver this message to God's people, he himself makes a declaration of how he wants to respond to this message. He says a little earlier in chapter 7, As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Now, why does that matter? These religious leaders are quoting from a book in the Old Testament. And they will have known the scriptures. They will have known these quotations that I've just read to you. But the significant thing is they probably didn't know the king to whom these quotations were referring. They knew of Micah who had made this declaration. I'm going to worship this God. I want to repent and I want to turn back to him. But they themselves hadn't done that themselves. There's no indication in this story that these religious leaders who knew this prophecy knew the God who this prophecy was speaking to because they just quote the prophecy to Herod, but there's no reaction from them. They just seem indifferent. Do you know there are lots of people at Christmas, aren't there, who are pretty ambivalent towards Christmas, indifferent. People who love celebrating Christmas, love some of the things that were shared on the open mic earlier, or the wonders and joys of Christmas. But actually, if they stop and think about it, are pretty indifferent to what it all means. It's just an excuse to have a nice party with friends. And that's a good thing to do. But how tragic it is that so many people in our world are indifferent about God. Because God is not a God who's indifferent about them. Uh, One writer I, I read once said this, Every human being has an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. You and I want to be loved and we want to extend our love to others. But if our first love is not a God of perfect love, then I choose to be loved by good things, good people, but who can't love me perfectly. And I seek to pass my love to other people who are good, but I can't love them perfectly. I have an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. And you see in the Christian gospel, you see in the Christmas story, that you and I are irresistibly desired by a most perfect God who loves us as we are, perfectly, uniquely. So isn't it a great tragedy that at Christmas time many people remain indifferent about God? Take it or leave it. I might come to a Christmas service, but I probably won't. But people are choosing to be indifferent about a God who's not indifferent about them. A God who is so passionately in love with them and wants to be in a relationship with them that as we learn at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. God came to earth to show us the amazing commitment he has for us. So you see, there's people who have hatred and hostility. I don't want anyone else to threaten my independence. There's people who remain indifferent. I'll take it or leave it, but I'm not that bothered. But notice, and we've looked at this last week, the third reaction is that of worship, verse 11. Because these wise men travel maybe a thousand miles And they bow down at the knees of this tiny baby and they offer these wonderful and elaborate and expensive gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we thought last week, didn't we, about that word glory that literally speaks of the weightiness of who God is. When we truly understand who he is, the extent of everything he has created, then the only right reaction is to worship him because we recognize just who he is. But here's the thing, as you reflect on your witness this Christmas, or if you're not yet a Christian, 
maybe as you reflect on your own heart attitude this morning, why do you think there are so many different reactions to this baby? Why could some people on my road wake up this morning overjoyed with the snow, throwing snowball, uh, snowballs at one another and laughing jovially, and others are very, very grumpy and wish the snow hadn't come? Why different reactions to the snow? More importantly, why different reactions to this baby? And I want to encourage you this Christmas, if you are seeking to witness to friends and family, and they either remain hostile or they just remain indifferent, The Bible is full of stories of people whose lives have been dramatically changed by Christ. And so often, these were lives who at one point were very, very hostile or who were very, very indifferent. Because it takes the grace of God to open a life and a heart. I think I've told this story before of a young boy called Alistair. When I was teaching up at rugby school in the Midlands, he was a young lad who came occasionally to the little Bible study that I ran. There were about 800 people in the school. I had about 12... 13 people who'd come to my little Bible study group. And Alistair would come occasionally, but most of the time it was just coming to wind me up. Uh, and uh, he'd always joke about the Christian faith. Sometimes he'd, he'd seem keen, but generally he was just a bit of a pain. Um, and uh, I left uh, the school after a while. I didn't hear of anything from Alistair. And then he found me on Facebook and just asked me for my address. And I was a bit puzzled why he'd want my address. Um, but he would left school and I thought it would be okay to pass it on to him. So I just gave him my address. And a week or two later, I got a little postcard from Alistair. And it said inside it, um, I'm just writing to thank you um, for the influence you had on me in school. I just want you to know that I'm now up in Manchester at Holy Trinity Platt. It's a church. And I'm doing a ministry trainee course, a bit like Izzy's doing here. And he wrote and said, would you be prepared to send me a little bit of money to help me with my training course? And then he goes on and was just talking about the joy of knowing Jesus. My jaw nearly hit the floor. So I sent him a little bit of money. I sent him a postcard back and said, it's such a joy to hear you're at Hello Trinity Platt. I've spoken at that church. I know it. What a joy. He was a boy who at best was sort of indifferent, but at worst was pretty hostile. But in God's timing, used different people and he drew Alistair to himself. And then Alistair found me on Facebook. He wrote to me and told me his testimony and I was overjoyed that day. I want to encourage you, if you are seeking to be a witness and you think it's making no difference, Alistair, I didn't think it made any difference to. But years later, he wrote to me and it clearly had made a difference. But also I want to help us to think a little bit this Christmas, just in the last few moments, about how maybe we can better witness this Christmas when we face indifference, when we face hostility. And to do that, I want to take this phrase that many people will, will quote at us, perhaps. And maybe this is you, if you're not a Christian, maybe you'll say this. If I said, would you come to a carol service? And people would respond, well, I don't believe. I want to make the point that that statement, I don't believe, is not neutral. It's not like Christians believe and, well, I just don't believe. I'm a neutral. If I don't believe the Christian gospel, it means I do believe something different. And so in that sense, we all believe. We all have faith. The question is, what do we believe or in whom do we place our faith? Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, You might meet a person who says, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. So it's a statement. This is what I don't believe or I do believe. But they don't or do believe because for them it makes more sense that the story was made up or maybe the body of Jesus was stolen. I believe A because of B. That's the point, okay? I'll give you a couple more and then I'll explain what I'm, where I'm going with this. 
You might meet a person who says, I don't believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Statement, this is what I believe. Why though? Because I don't believe miracles happen. See, skepticism, um, doubt, unbelief, indifference, even hostility is still a belief system. The question is, what are people believing? Let me give you a few more examples. Uh, Someone might say, I'm not persuaded by the Christian faith because Christians I know are hypocritical. That's a statement. And perhaps it's a true statement that Christians can be hypocritical. But that statement is based on the understanding that belief in Christians are nice people. And so if I meet Christians who are not nice people, I therefore assume that the Christian faith can't be true. That's how some people argue. I'll give you a couple more. I don't believe in God because if he was loving, he'd take away my suffering. There's the belief. But what drives that belief is a belief underneath that says the only way for God to be loving is to make my life comfortable. So if my life's not comfortable, he can't be a loving God. Therefore, he doesn't exist. One last one. I don't believe because the Bible is contradictory. That's the belief. But it could be underlaid by another belief that there's no such thing as mystery. Or that if I can't understand, it must be wrong. Without the humility to recognize maybe I'm the limitation. Do you see? Now what, why I've given you these examples is because these are what um, the American pastor Tim Keller calls defeater beliefs. And he, he uses this in a little article to help us as Christians to be a witness. Because he says so often, people believe A, or sorry, people don't believe certain things about the Christian faith A, because they believe something else. Now, why do I share that with us? I share it because as we seek to be a witness this Christmas and uphold truths of who we say Jesus is, it's not just about proclaiming who Jesus is. It's also helping people to see who Jesus isn't. And if someone has a belief here that they hold to very firmly, it will mean that they can't believe this belief. So sometimes it's not just about proclaiming A, it's about exposing B. So someone might just say, well, I'm an atheist. Okay, be an atheist, but are you a thought through atheist? Have you thought about that position? Is it logical? Does it add up? Does it make the best sense of your life? Because by holding this understanding, it prevents you from believing something that might be true. I believe A, and it's B that stops... I don't believe A, and it's because this belief B stops me from believing. So as we looked last week, true worship is about centering our affections around Jesus Christ who gives our life meaning. And we summarize that by saying it really means true worship is about saying, I live for Jesus. He is Lord of my life. He comes first. And yet, as we've seen in this passage, there are three very, very different responses to Jesus. There's outright hatred and hostility from Herod. There's indifference from religious people who know the story, but it doesn't seem to change their heart. And then there's worship from these kings who've come afar, but are drawn to Jesus and want to know who he is. Well, think about that first Christmas, because that first Christmas, when God entered time and space in the person of his son, Jesus, God gave us his very best in Jesus. He gave us his very best to pardon us from all the judgment that we would face from rejecting him. Why would I, indeed, why would a person want to respond to God with hostility when he responds to them with incredible love and generosity in the gospel? Or think about that first Christmas when God gave us his very best in Jesus to show us just how passionate he is about our relationship with us. 
Why would you? Why would I? Why would someone want to respond to a God who loves us that perfectly with indifference? I think about that first Christmas when God gave us his very best in Jesus Christ to show us that true freedom comes through putting him first. Who in the world, what in the world can love us as perfectly as he loves us? Nothing and no one. And that is why Jesus says that it's loving him first that is the source of true freedom. And that is what we proclaim this Christmas. So as I close, could you come back to the passage and look at this little quotation from the book of Micah and look at what he speaks of this coming ruler, Jesus Christ. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And if you are a Christian believer here this morning, then you know Jesus Christ as your true shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects. A shepherd guides. A shepherd leads their sheep to green pasture. And when God entered time and space in the person of Jesus that first Christmas, Jesus Christ is that true shepherd. The true shepherd who will guide us through our life, who will protect us And who leads us to green pastures. And that is the true shepherd that we're seeking to proclaim this Christmas. So I pray that we will be challenged by the different reactions to Jesus. I pray we'll first think about our reaction in our own heart to the person of Jesus. And then we won't get discouraged when we face different reactions as we seek to be a witness this Christmas. But we will trust that in God's timing he is drawing to himself people who like the wise men will bow down and worship him. Should we pray together? Just in your heart, why don't you just picture the road on which you live and try and picture the scenes on your road this morning of different people reacting in different ways to the snow. And as as it were, each of those reactions to the snow could represent a different reaction to Jesus Christ. Think of those people who very grumpy and angry about the snow this morning think of a person you know who is hostile to the christian faith maybe a loved one that you're seeking to witness to who's just indifferent take it or leave it and just in a moment of quiet why don't you lift these individuals before the lord because you don't know whether these individuals are like alistair at the school that i was teaching at once and in god's timing he drew them him to himself. Just take a moment to lift these individuals before the Lord. Our loving Father, as we see the different reactions to the birth of Jesus in this story, we pray that you would protect us from ever having a reaction to our Creator that is full of hatred and hostility. Thank you for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ, that for so many here we can testify that you lifted us from a place of hatred and hostility. And by your grace, you enabled us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you have shown. Lord, many of us at different times in our life will be indifferent towards you. So easy just to be lukewarm and not to care about the things that you care about. It's so easy to get swept along with the busyness of Christmas. To maybe know the story, to go through the routine of different carol services, but our hearts are never changed by you. We pray, Lord, for protection on our hearts that we would never become indifferent towards our Saviour. 
And we pray this Christmas as we've tried to slow down and look more carefully at Matthew chapter 2 that you would help us, like these wise men, to truly worship our Creator. Help us, Lord, to have the same joy in relationship with the God who made us that the little children on my road had this morning as they were throwing snowballs at each other. Help us have a greater joy than that because we recognize that in the person of Jesus Christ, you take the judgment we deserve. You show us just how loved we are. And you free us from the burden of ever having to be good enough for you and love us as we are. Thank you that when you look at me, when you look at us, you see your perfect son, Jesus. And I pray this Christmas we would not respond to you. And indeed, the people we seek to witness to would not respond with hatred and hostility. Would not respond with indifference, but would respond with worship. Because we thank you that it's only through worship of you that true freedom can be found. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our great and good shepherd. And we lift our eyes to you now as we sing that song, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Amen.